Welcome to all of you, our guests today. Glad that you're here with us. And once again, welcome to those that are with us online. Our Bibles are open to the first chapter of Galatians. We continue in our Sunday morning series from Paul's letter to the Galatians, his primary letter. We believe it to be his first letter. And if it wasn't his first, it was either his second or his third, depending on, um, uh, on how you count years and how you look at certain things that Paul wrote, but we believe it was probably the first that he wrote, and we're focusing on the gospel. Galatians is important because it reminds us of the essential gospel, the things that we must believe about the most important component of our faith, which is, of course, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the good news that God has acted in love to deliver fallen human beings from the bondage of sin unto a right relationship with himself, and that he's done it through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Today, as we continue our journey through this letter, I want to visit with you for a few minutes on some personal reflections concerning the gospel. These are not my personal reflections, although I must confess they have, over the years, become personal reflections. If somebody asked me, can you summarize the gospel briefly? These would be among the four or five things that I would instantly tell them because of what I've learned about the gospel from my study of God's Word. But these are the Apostle Paul's ref, uh, reflections about the gospel. And so we want to know from his perspective, as he's defending the gospel, the one true gospel, the only gospel, to people in South Galatia, to the churches of South Galatia that he himself had founded along with Barnabas and and, uh, and at least initially John Mark, before Mark left to go back home, he wants them to understand that there is only one gospel. And in today's passage, we're going to find from the Apostle Paul, here's fundamentally what it looks like. Now, if you're not familiar with Paul's letter to the Galatians, you need to know that the letter to the Galatians is nicely divided into three fundamental sections. Uh, chapters 1 and 2 are basically what we call a personal section of the Apostle Paul. We have more autobiographical information about Paul in the first two chapters of Galatians than anywhere else in all of the Bible. Chapters 3 and 4 are primarily theological, and they deal fundamentally with the subject of the gospel and more particularly with what we call justification by faith alone in Christ alone, and we'll be getting to that in a little bit. And then the final two chapters, chapters 5 and 6, is the practical section. What do we do with all this theology that we've learned in the preceding part of Galatians? How do we apply it to life? And as is Paul's custom, uh, he tells us exactly how to do that in a very brief kind of way. And today we kind of tread into this personal section of the letter to the Galatians, and we're confronted this week and next, and the following week actually, with some of the richest biographical information about the Apostle Paul that we have from Paul's own hand anywhere in the Word of God. And our purpose as we unpack much of what's in this section is not for me to give you a history lesson about the Apostle Paul, although there's nothing wrong with that. There are some facts and figures you probably would do well to know about Paul's life. But our primary purpose is to uncover what Paul's personal experiences actually can teach us about the gospel itself, the gospel that he is supporting, the gospel that he's proclaiming, and the gospel that he's defending here to the Galatians throughout this letter. 
You need to remember, just in case you may have forgotten, that Paul's credibility is under attack when he writes this. There are some people, fellow believers, people claiming to be fellow believers, that are proverbially trying to throw the Apostle Paul under the bus. They're saying that he's not a genuine apostle. In fact, they're accusing Paul, these false teachers that have infiltrated the region of South Galatia, coming in behind the Apostle Paul once he left. They're accusing Paul of being a second-rate apostle who's preaching a second-hand gospel. They accuse him of being a renegade evangelist, not actually called by the Lord Jesus Christ, but self-appointed in this role as an apostle, and learning as much as he could about the gospel, not directly from God, but from other human beings, particularly the apostles down in Jerusalem. He got it from them, the false teachers were saying, and now he's twisting it to suit his own personal agenda. Now, what's ironic about that is that's the pot calling the kettle black, because that's exactly what the false teachers themselves were doing. They were the secondhand prophetic teachers preaching the second-rate gospel, and they were twisting it, disturbing the church, troubling the church in order to accomplish their own personal agenda. And to combat these charges, Paul gives us this terrific biographical statement here that he backs up down in verse 20. We'll get to that in a minute. But before we even look at it today, Paul is going to make some confessions here to defend himself. And down in verse 20, he takes an oath before God. Here's what he says. Parenthetically, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. That's like Paul taking the witness stand and raising his right hand and saying, the testimony that I'm about to give you is the truth the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me, God. And so what I want to do today is to look at this statement of defense, and I want to draw from it for our own practical purposes four very important reflections that Paul makes about the gospel itself and what these reflections still mean for us today now 2,000 years later. Y'all ready to get going this morning? Say amen. The first is simply this. The gospel must be revealed in order to be understood. That's the first reflection. Paul says, you want me to help you understand this business about the gospel? The first thing that I would remind you is that if God doesn't show up and reveal it to you, you'll never be able to grasp it fully and understand it, and it'll never be able to fully impact your life. Look with me at verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul had some things that he wanted to make perfectly clear to the church, and the first among them was that The gospel he preached, as he says here, was not man's gospel. In other words, uh, this was something that Paul had made very clear, really, from the very first verse. If you go back a couple of messages in this series, when we introduce the letter by looking at Paul's introduction, he says there right out of the gate, 
chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So now Paul basically says the same thing again to the Galatians by way of reminder that the gospel did not come to him through human channels. He didn't get it from another human being. It wasn't something that he himself had made up, as though the gospel could be a product of human invention. Paul says, I didn't invent it myself. It wasn't something that I fabricated in my own mind. In fact, we know that Paul didn't invent the gospel by his own creativity because he never would have done that. He wouldn't have invented it. You know why? Because Paul wasn't raised on anything having to do with grace. Paul was raised on a scoring system of currying points with God through doing good works and good religious deeds. It's a scoring system. Whoever scores the most points wins at the end of the ball game. And you can never really know if you've scored enough points to win. And so hopefully one of these days when you die, you'll get to heaven and God will look at you and say, you know what? You score, you got by, but just by the skin of your teeth, come on in. There's no assurance with any of that, but yet that's how Paul was raised. And if we're all honest this morning, if we were inventing a gospel about how human beings could curry favor with God or get to God or be accepted by God, we would probably all admit that that's the way we, we, would, we would draw it up as well because we're so competitively minded. We, we would make the emphasis all about us, wouldn't we? And about the good things that we could do and the good things that we have done. No, we've learned through other passages of Scripture. What's the operative word in the letter to the Galatians? I told you a couple of weeks ago. What's the operative word? Anybody remember? Grace. Grace is the operative word. And grace was not something that was even on the radar screen of the mind of the apostle. Paul was totally foreign to his way of thinking. So Paul says, I didn't make it up. It's not the product of my own invention. Neither Paul said that I received the gospel through church tradition as though it was something that had been handed down to me by the leaders of the church. Paul will testify just a few verses later that he hadn't been around the Jerusalem apostles that long. He barely even knew them. And he certainly hadn't been around them long enough for him to have a full-orbed understanding of the gospel. Paul says, I didn't make it up. I didn't receive it as if it were handed down. Paul says, I didn't learn the gospel as though it was through personal instruction. So it wasn't the product of invention. It wasn't the product of church tradition. Paul says it wasn't the product of human instruction in the same way, for example, that Paul learned the law from his teacher Gamaliel, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, having Gamaliel, Gamaliel uh, spoon feed him and all of his other uh, rabbinic students, these facts and figures about the law of God. That's not how Paul says, I learned the gospel. And so he's emphatic. I didn't invent it. The church fathers didn't transfer it to me. I didn't learn it as the product of human instruction. Instead, Paul says, the gospel came to me by divine revelation, something that I received directly from the Lord. That's exactly the word he uses, revelation. In the Greek New Testament, the word is apocalypsis. We get our word apocalyptic from it, which is a great word to use because the gospel came to Paul apocalyptically. It was a very dramatic, eye-opening encounter with the risen Christ himself. That's a reference, of course, to 
Paul's conversion and call experience on the road to Damascus. He was headed, of course, to Damascus in Syria to round up believers, as had become his custom. He was a persecutor of the church, and the Lord revealed himself to him. Paul wasn't seeking the Lord. He wasn't looking to find the Lord Jesus Christ. This was how Paul got the gospel. Even though Paul had some facts about the gospel, he had to have some facts about the gospel because he was trying to wipe it out. And so he knew some things about the gospel. But can I just say this morning, you can know some facts and figures about the gospel, but that won't save you or anybody else. Having facts about the gospel is great. It's a great way to start. And there are some things that you really do have to comprehend about the gospel in order to be saved, but that's not going to save you by itself unless God shows up to do it. I've told you all before, I think, that one of the clearest expositions of the gospel I've ever heard in my life came from an Orthodox Jewish rabbinic professor in a Hebrew university. He gave the most clearly biblical, articulate explanation of the gospel that I ever heard. And once he got finished with it, he paused for about two seconds and he said, but I just don't believe it. Man, he had the facts down cold. But the Lord hadn't shown up to his life. And this is what Paul is making very clear here. Men alone cannot reveal the gospel. The church by itself cannot reveal the gospel. Independent self-study of the scriptures by itself cannot reveal the gospel. And you know why? Because the human heart by nature is naturally hardened to the gospel. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, notice it, the natural person, in other words, the unsaved person, the unregenerate person, the unredeemed person, the person apart from Christ, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he is not able to understand them because they are what? Say it out loud. They are spiritually discern. The gospel must be revealed in order to be understood. And that needs, leads naturally to a second reflection that Paul has about the gospel, namely that the gospel is for really bad people. And can I add parenthetically, we're all bad people. Now, I need to say that for pointed emphasis this morning, and I get tickled every time I say it because I know there are people in the audience going, well, I'm not a bad person. Well, you might do good things, but you're still intrinsically a bad person in the eyes of God. And you need to know it. You need to know it. The Bible couches that concept in the language of depravity. The heart by nature, the Bible says, is deceitful above all and desperately wicked. It's so wicked, you can't even know it fully yourself. And you know, Paul's going to use his own life as an example of this here in this passage, beginning in verse 13. He's going to say, you want an example of this? Look at my own checkered life. And he's going to do this to support the contention that he'd received the gospel as a revelation directly from God. This is, he's trying to make the point, if God had not shown up to my life, I never would have been saved because I was too bad to even know that I needed to be saved. 
Look at what he says here beginning in verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now, most people who are even only slightly aware of the Apostle Paul and his background kind of have this understanding of knowing that he was like this really bad dude. And, And they'd be right. That's an appropriate assumption. Because Paul was what we would call a domestic terrorist. That's what he was. I mean, he was a fanatic for the law. He had this developed fanaticism about all things Jewish. The law, the temple, uh, the temple ceremonies, the feasts, everything about it. And, And it had to be preserved. The last thing he wanted was for the Judaism of his day to be absorbed into the larger and growing Gentile world around it. And so he made it his mission in life to preserve, protect, and defend the law of Moses and the law of God. And he became this persecutor of the church, this radical zealot. And we know much about the Apostle Paul from his own testimony. He was the son of a Pharisee. His father was a Pharisee, this super elite sect of the Jews. And he'd been schooled in the Jewish law, rabbinic education from the time he was five or six years old. He would have been sent off to Jerusalem as a teenager around the age of 14, and he studied under the great teachers of his day, Gamaliel. He'd later become a Pharisee himself, cream of the crop. And he slowly but surely over all this time was transformed into this radical religious zealot. I mean, we see these types of people in the news all the time today. Well, that's, that was the Apostle Paul. You know, he didn't blow things up, but if he were alive today, he probably would. Persecutor of Christians. That's how we first notice him in the book of Acts. Casting his vote in favor of the death of the righteous man, Stephen, as he was giving testimony to God before the Jewish Sanhedrin. And from there, it only got worse. The Bible says in Acts 8 and verse 3, Saul, which was his former name, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. It says in the very next chapter, Acts 9 verse 1, Saul was breathing out threats and what? Murder against the disciples of the Lord. Can we just agree this morning that Saul was a bad man? And his life is a critical reminder that that's who the gospel is for. The gospel is for really bad people. And let's enlarge it. We're all bad people. Now, we may not all be really bad people in terms of our actions. This is where you have to be careful. You think, not like that. No, you're not. But it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. You're comparing yourself, and again, I've used this illustration a hundred times. You're comparing yourself to like the worst of the worst, and if you're not careful, you'll walk away thinking, I'm a pretty good guy, pretty good gal, right? Well, you're comparing yourself to the wrong standard. The standard to which you and I are to compare ourselves is the perfect holiness of Almighty God. How's that working out for you? Not too good. Compare yourself to the right standard, not the wrong standard. 
When we do that, it's easy to understand how the Bible says what it says in Romans 3, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Notice the extremity in the language. No, none, not even, all. I mean, nobody's excluded from the highlight list here. Just a very exhaustive set of statements there in Romans 3 that Paul's very intentional to use to highlight that he wasn't the only bad man around. They were all bad dudes when we compare ourselves to the holiness of God, which is the requirement for entry into heaven. Only righteous people go to heaven. We're not righteous, which means we got a problem, right? And for even the best of people, for even the best of people, the testimony of the word is clear. Isaiah 64, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like, say it out loud, are like what? That's even the best of us. Our best deeds are as filthy, rotten, rejected rags in the presence of a holy God. Pastor Mark Dever, who pastors Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., tells a story about a relative of his who was very hostile to the gospel, and they were at a family meeting one time or family gathering one time, and she just came, and she was very bold. She came up to him knowing he was a pastor, and she said, I just have come to believe that everybody that's associated with the church is just an association with a pit of vipers. All the church is just an associated pit of vipers. And then he looked at her and he said, well, let me ask you this. Do you believe the people outside the church are any better than the ones inside the church? No, I really don't. And she said, he said, okay, well, here's the thing. To be honest, I really don't disagree with you. We are just pretty much a bunch of snakes in the eyes of God. And here's the good news. We've got room for one more this Sunday if you'd like to slither on in. <laughs> That's right. The character of humanity apart from God is that. And it's a great reminder. Now, the, all, the, all the other world religions will tell you, you've got what it takes in yourself to become better and better and better and better. And that's how they'll build their religion, by getting you to do good things over and over and over again as a way to curry favor with God. But Christianity teaches just the opposite, that the Christian gospel is for bad people. And we're all bad people. Now, what this means, of course, is that if any of us are going to get saved, God's going to have to do it. Paul saw his salvation as a miracle. And can I just say the salvation of the Apostle Paul had to be a miracle because there was no way that murderous, mean-spirited zealot was ever going to change his own mind about a cross that he was uh, totally convinced that bore a false messiah. He wasn't going to change his own mind about that. And I think it's here that Paul would say, at this point, let me give you a third reflection about the gospel, and that is the gospel is rooted in the sovereign grace of God. 
What's the operative word of Paul's letter to the Galatians? Grace is the operative word. In fact, it's because we are all bad people, that we're desperate for the grace of God. That's why the Baptist national anthem, for crying out loud, is amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Once was lost, now I'm found blind, but now I see. See, we're desperate for the grace of God because it's our only hope to be saved. Paul will say later in in chapter 2 of Galatians, I do not set aside the grace of God. And it's no wonder why. I mean, I wonder how many people in the early church who knew of Paul had totally written that guy off. I bet a bunch of people had. Apostle Paul, man, that's a guy. Ain't no way that guy's ever going to get saved. Y'all ever written anybody off before? Come on now. He is too far gone. There's one guy. He is never going to be saved. Well, you better be very careful about saying who God can and cannot save. God has the power to save. Love the song. Our God saves. We don't save. But thank God we have a God who's in the saving business. And you know what? If it were up to Paul uh, and anything that he could bring to bear on the situation, Paul never would have been saved if it had been up to him. But salvation isn't based on what we do. Even, listen, even when we do things that are good, we do things to help other people. We, do, we might even do things in the name of God. Here's the thing. What Paul was doing before he got saved, he was doing in the name of God. He didn't think he needed to be saved. He thought he already was saved. And that was how he was showing it. By trying to keep Judaism pure, even when it costs the lives of other human beings. No, salvation is all of grace. And that's clearly reflected in Paul's reflection in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his, who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. And let's just stop there for a moment because I've said many times before and I still believe it that I think the conversion of this man the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is one of the strongest evidences for the truthfulness of Christianity that you'll find anywhere. I mean, it's just miraculous that this guy was ever saved. Given all that negative that we've painted this morning about him, we come to verse 15 and we're immediately confronted with one of the great words of all of the Bible. I call it the divine conjunction. What is it? But... All this junk, all this badness, but that's what Paul does here. Paul is painting a before and after picture. Here's who I was, but here's what God did. Didn't have anything to do with him. The only time Paul talks about himself here fundamentally, at least up to this point, it's all about the bad stuff. When it comes to salvation, he turns from the first person to the third person and directs his attention back to God. Here's who I was. Here's what God did. God set me apart. God 
called me by his grace. God was pleased to reveal his son in me. God, God, God. Salvation is all God. And if you don't believe that, just look at the remarkable statement that Paul makes here about his own salvation, his calling, uh, and his calling. He believes that his salvation and his calling, can we just call it this morning, prenatal. Prenatal. God had called him and chose him, setting me apart before I was born. So we call that the doctrine of election. And it puts Paul in something of a prophetic line because Jeremiah said the same thing about himself in the first chapter of Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, God called me to preach from before I was conceived in my mother's womb. Puts him in the line of Jeremiah, puts him in the line of John the Baptist. All of us who know the Christmas story and the things leading up to the Christmas story should know that John the Baptist was called, set apart as the divine forerunner of God from the time of his birth. Those guys didn't have anything to do with it. All they had to do was respond to the call of God. See, that's all grace. That's all grace. Paul wasn't trying to find God's mercy. God's mercy came looking for Paul. Paul, Again, Paul wasn't looking to be saved. Paul already thought he was saved. He thought he was doing God's work, racking up points because salvation is all about a scoring system. Grace was foreign to him. And every person that Paul tossed in a dungeon somewhere racked up more points in the kingdom of heaven. See, the point Paul's making here is nobody ever decides to follow Jesus unless and until God first shows up and reveals the gospel to them. And again, sin won't let you do it. Listen, it's okay for us to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. I did decide to follow Jesus, but you have to keep the cart before the horse. I didn't decide to follow Jesus before Jesus first showed up to me and called me unto himself. Nobody has that kind of power to save themselves. You don't just wake up one morning and say, you know what? I'm lost. I think I'll give my life to Christ today. No, God has to do work on your heart first. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. See, Lazarus was very dead, and Lazarus came out of the tomb, but Lazarus didn't come out of the tomb on his own choice. Lazarus came out of the tomb because a risen Savior, or one who would become a risen Savior, went to the tomb first and shouted his name out loud, Lazarus, come forth. And because of that shout, that cry of command from the living God himself, Lazarus came back to life again. The same thing has to happen to you and me. That's why it's so important. The Bible says there's an urgency when you hear the word of God, when you hear the gospel of God, when you feel the tug of the spirit of God and the conviction of God in your life, don't harden your heart. Respond. Respond. Now is the accepted time of salvation, the Bible says. And this is what happened to Paul on the Damascus Road. The same thing that happened to Lazarus in the tomb physically It's exactly the same thing that happened to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus spiritually. He was just as dead spiritually as Lazarus was physically, and it took 
a living Savior to show up to call him unto himself. All right? Because the gospel isn't rooted in human achievement. The gospel is rooted in the sovereign grace of God. Everybody tracking with me so far? Three very critical reflections. Let me give you a fourth, and we're done this morning. And that is the product of the gospel. What the gospel does once it has been received and responded to with faith, the gospel fourthly transforms sinners into servants. The gospel comes from God, but for what purpose? What does it do once it's received in a person's life? Well, the answer very simply is it changes a person. It transforms a person. The gospel is radically transformative in a person's life. Let me just tell you, it begins with this. Not everything about a saved person's life is going to change overnight. Discipleship is a process. It's a marathon. You don't get to full maturity in Christ in a day. And so there are going to be some lingering bad habits and some lingering uh, worldly uh, proclivities. But I can tell you, once a person is saved, I can tell you what changes on a dime, and that is the desire. My heart changes. I may not do everything right, but I sure long to do everything right. I may not please God with every part of my life, but I sure long to please God with every part of my life. Before I met the Lord, I used to be able to sin and love it. Now I might lapse into sin, but I loathe it when I do. I know it when I do. I'm not happy about it when I do. Not everything about my life changes once I give it to Christ based on his call. But what does change is the desire. If any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he is a new creation. Old things have what? Passed away. All things have become new. And so what the gospel does is it takes us who before we met the Lord were self-serving in every part of our life. The sinner is always focused on self. Who is the king of kings in someone's life who does not know God? Self. You are. You're your own biggest idol before you meet the Lord. After you meet the Lord, Jesus becomes king of kings and Lord of lords. And so salvation is the act by which God transformed self-serving sinners into God-honoring servants. Now the object of my life is to please God with my life. So, Paul says, we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. And that's a reminder from Paul's life. You look at Paul's life before and after, and it's a great reminder that the God who saves us is the God who equips us. The moment that Paul met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, Christ not only converted him, Christ called him at the same time. And the same was true with you and me, if we know the Lord. Every call of Christ to be saved comes with a call of Christ to serve. He calls us by grace, and then by grace, he gives us a place, a mission, a calling. In verses 16 and following, Paul reflects that, that God revealed the gospel to him for a purpose. 
Verse 16, in order that, that's an introductory way to characterize purpose or result. God was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that. Why? I might preach him among the Gentiles. That was God's purpose for his life. And what follows there in verses 16 through the end of the chapter, this is some of the critical, important historical detail about Paul's early Christian life. Now, we only have time just to read it today. And I wish we had time to delve into it. I'll have to leave that with you. But let's just read it. Verse 16 and following, Paul says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. And remember, he's defending himself against these false charges. I didn't consult with anybody immediately. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Who's that? That's Peter. This is his Aramaic, the Aramaic form of his, of his name. I went up to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained with him how long? Only 15 days, two weeks. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Verse 21, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, back up well north and west of Jerusalem. Now, what you have, I just read five statements there. That's 10 years of Paul's ministry, the first 10 years of Paul's ministry in five statements. Man, wouldn't you like to fill in the blanks? Ten years. And why does he even bring it up? Well, remember, he's defending himself against these charges that he really wasn't an apostle. He got his gospel from those guys down in Jerusalem. And then he twists it to advance his own agenda. No, and so Paul gives this timeline precisely to demonstrate that that couldn't have happened. I couldn't have gotten my gospel from the Jerusalem apostles because I'd only spent two weeks with them. I didn't even go to Jerusalem until three years after I was saved. Three years. I didn't even go. And then when I did go, I was only there 15 days. Hardly enough time for me to develop a full-orbed understanding of the gospel in order to preach it among the Gentiles. And as far as we know, after this first visit, he wouldn't go back to visit Jerusalem again for at least another seven or eight years, maybe even a little bit longer. Now, that's all good stuff, but here's what I really want you to notice. I just want you to notice for our purposes today that when God called Paul unto himself to be saved, God then called Paul at the same time to go out and serve. No longer... Was he to live his life based on gratifying his own desires? All of that's now changed. God had done a work on his heart such that Paul would no longer live self-centered, but totally Christ-centered. And the change was so obvious, everybody noticed it and said so. Verse 22, I was still unknown in person to the church's of Judea that are in Christ, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they what? 
they glorified God, watch this, because of me. Man, there was a time they were running from that guy and thinking bad thoughts. Now they're praising God for what only the grace of God can do in a depraved, lost human life. Now, here's what I want to know from everybody in the house this morning. Y'all still with me? Say amen. amen. Has that kind of thing happened to you? That kind of before and after story? I mean, it's not going to perfectly mirror the life of the Apostle Paul, but most of it can. Here's who I was before I met the Lord. Here's how the Lord showed up in my life. Here's what the Lord revealed to me about my own life. Here's how I responded to the call of God. Have you had a moment like that, this out-of-nowhere experience where the Lord showed up to you to confront you in your sin and to call you unto himself in order to change you so that you might be saved and have the wherewithal to now have a purposeful life of serving him now and for all of eternity? Has the whole course of your life been radically redirected so that others can look at you and say, this is not the same person he or she used to be? I know some people were saved as little kids, and so the, the dramatic piece of it is not quite the same. But there's still, even for the youngest among us, there is still a change from old to new. And I just wonder this morning, has that happened in your life? may not be as dramatic, but know this. Your situation is just... The, as the Apostle Paul's, it's the same. And your need, your spiritual need, is just as real. And the message of Paul to every single one of us is crystal clear. The gospel is the good news. It's rooted in the grace of God. It's revealed only by the sovereignty of Christ. It's for bad people in dark places so that sinners can become servants and honor God with a purpose and a meaning as long as they're alive in this life. And the good news is this morning, if God can do that to a man like Paul, God can surely do it for you and me as well. Because this is the gospel. It is God's word. And let all who agree say amen this morning.